with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Is that your desire this morning? To turn your eyes to Jesus. Um, it's in his light, it's in his glory that all other things kind of fade into the background. And um, what a privilege it is to gather on the Sabbath day, amen? To gather around his word, and on a special Sabbath like this, to gather around simple symbols that have deep, profound meaning, uh, the communion Sabbath. This morning, I want to encourage you just to, uh, to really seek God out, because he wants to do something very special. You know, um, even before we get into our teaching, I, I realize that even now, maybe some of us are making plans for who we will partner up with when it comes to the foot washing time. Or maybe some of us are even wondering if we're going to walk straight to the parking lot. I'll just be very honest. I, <laughs> um, I, I would really encourage you, friends, to not pass this opportunity by. This is an opportunity to commune with Jesus. There's nothing magical about the water that we wash our feet with. There's nothing magical about the grape juice or the bread. But what is of power is the faith that we put in Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> yeah, it's when we believe Jesus that, that God accounts that to us as righteousness. That's what the Bible tells me anyway. And so, um, yeah, God has given us these symbols to be a practical demonstration of our faith in Jesus' blood to cleanse. And so, I would encourage you even now just to really prepare your hearts for that. I want to get into our study this morning. This is part three of our series on the DNA of discipleship. DNA of discipleship part three, and specifically we're looking at community and communion. Community and communion. And I'll just warn you, I'll just warn you, this message is only for those who struggle with selfishness, okay? It's only for those who struggle with selfishness. So if that's not you, I apologize. You can go ahead, start doodling on your... Just kidding. Anyways, but we're going to get into the Word this morning. You ready for this? Yeah? Well, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we don't want to take this lightly. This is your Word. This is your day, your house. So would you please fulfill your purpose? We claim that promise in Isaiah 55 that says that your Word will not return to you void without accomplishing the purpose for which you send it. And so, God, please plow up the hard places of our hearts today, and may we receive the seed of the Word of God. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen. All right, turn in your Bible with me, if you will, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. You know this story. Whether you've read it recently or not, you know it in the back of your mind. It's there. It was a familiar scene. The night was growing dark, and Jesus had one last supper with his disciples. He had sent his disciples ahead of him to kind of make preparations for it, and according to Luke, Jesus tells his disciples, with deep passion, I have desired to have this supper with you. But there was something wrong that night. 
as they gathered together in that upper room, after three or more years of Jesus investing in these 12 disciples, his mission of discipleship, and that's not a, that's not a mission for the faint at heart. The mission of making disciples, it's deep investment. The mission of making disciples is what Jesus came from heaven to earth for. And after three plus years of making disciples, his disciples, who ought to be imitating Jesus in every manner, his disciples are gathered and they're bickering. They're arguing. There's a problem on their hands. They all want to be close to Jesus, but in reality, it has become a selfish endeavor. We can't resonate with that. Not in God's church today, right? Oh, I've been here longer than you. Why are you in my pew? We don't deal with that today, or do we? And this problem that Jesus saw, this jockeying for position, this jostling to be closer to Jesus, and in a desire to be close to Jesus, and yet still care nothing for the people around them. And Jesus could not sit on his hands to let this persist. Jesus had to step in. Because he realized that if he didn't, then this was the product of three and a half years of disciple-making? If he didn't, then what hope would there be of the Great Commission being fulfilled? Go, make disciples of all nations. Who would want to be made a disciple like that? Who would want to be a part of a community like that? And so Jesus stepped in, and how? How did he step in? According to John chapter 13, if you're there, say amen. amen. Jesus stepped in in a radical way. John chapter 13, I'm reading from the New King James Version. The Bible says in verse 1, John chapter 13, verse 1, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that, the, that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he did what to them? He loved them till what? To the end. As Jesus noticed what was going on in that upper room, that everybody wanted communion with Jesus but could care less about community with anybody else, Jesus had to love them to the very end. This was Jesus' radical response. You know, I've often wondered, what does that mean for Jesus to love us to the end? You know, when, when you talk about going to the end of something or sticking it out to the end, taking that 5K tomorrow morning, oh, I'm going to go to the end, you're talking about finishing its course. Making sure that you don't pull back or step up or light up, you are going to finish it out. And Jesus, in a temporal sense, he loved them to the very last second. Can you say amen? Jesus loves us with an everlasting love. But I would say that this end is more than just the temporal end, the, the, the end of, you know, the, the counting of time, but I would say it's an end in, a, in an absolute sense. He loved the disciples to the full extent that he could possibly love them. He loved them to the fullest expression of agape, self-sacrificing love. And what does that love look like? Well, according to this story, it says, and supper, verse 2, 
being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So just imagine, that the narrative is setting this up. These disciples are not only just trying to fight over who's going to be the greatest or who's going to sit next to Jesus. One of the disciples is, in fact, demon-possessed. And it's in this environment that Jesus decides still to love them to the absolute sin. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going to God, this is what loving to the end looks like. Verse 4, Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. If you ever wonder what Jesus' love looks like, look right here. Jesus' love looks like a God who rises up only to lay himself aside. The love of God is such that he is most exalted when he is giving himself for you and me. The love of God is such, the character of God is such, that he is most glorified when he is serving you and me. The garments uh, that were his, he laid them aside and he took garments that were not his. He took a towel and with that towel, he washed and wiped the stains and blemishes of the disciples' dirty feet. What love is this? That the things which Jesus himself identified with, put them on his own body, are the very stains, the very blemishes that keep us separated from him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, This act of rising up only to lay himself aside, it was a foreshadowing of the cross. It was a foreshadowing of him being lifted up only to lay himself aside. This was a foreshadowing of the love of God to its deepest, most full extent. He loved them to the end. That's powerful to me. This is the God of love. This is the God who is not concerned about what he gets from us, but what he can give to us. Wow. And this tells me, you know, we've been talking about the, uh, the DNA of discipleship, what it takes to be a disciple, what it takes to make disciples. That's what we'll talk about in the, the next few weeks. But what it takes to be a disciple, friends, what does this say about Jesus' mission of making disciples? Jesus, the master disciple maker, he recognizes that in order for anyone to be a disciple, this mission of making disciples is from first to last, from beginning to end, a mission that is driven by self-sacrificing love. That's what it is. Without this love, disciple making cannot exist. Without this love, without this, uh, in the the context, in the environment, in the culture, discipleship cannot happen. Which means that our experience and growth, our hope of ever becoming mature disciples, can only take place when we are fully assured of the love of God. 
Okay, now I'm, I'm starting to use like very familiar terms like the love of God, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the, you know, this is going to sound like very, very trite and very, very elementary, but I want us to understand something. You and I cannot ever hope to become fully mature disciples of Jesus if we are not first assured of a love that is not conditional. Those disciples in that room did not deserve, did not merit the love of Jesus to the end. They did nothing to earn it. Their performance was, you know, in the pits. They had nothing to give. They, they have nothing to recommend themselves, yet Jesus loved them to the end. Discipleship cannot happen unless we are first fully assured that Jesus loves me whether or not I perform. Let me tell you why. Because last time that we were together, when we talked about the commitments of discipleship, we drew that on the whiteboard, you know, the commitment to Christ, the commitment to growth, the commitment to prophecy, commitment to the second coming. All of our pursuit of these commitments, if we are not first assured of the love of God, all of that pursuit will only be driven by an attempt to earn God's love. All of that pursuit will only be driven by either the praise of men or the fear of rejection. And when that happens, discipleship looks like a selfish endeavor. And so, are we assured of the love of God that is ours, whether or not we deserve it? That's a radical love. Jesus knew that only in the context of this radical, self-sacrificing love that is not contingent not uh, this for that. Only in the context of that kind of love could disciples ever be made. And that's why he radically responded. When he found the upper room the way it was, he changed the temperature of that room. He went to the thermostat and checked it. He said, this is not going to be. Let me wash this clean. And so he did it. He showed it. He demonstrated it. And he said, blessed are you if you do it too. <laughs> And that's why later on in the chapter, you're still there, John 13. That's why later on in the chapter, in verse 34 and 35, he gives them a new commandment. What? A new commandment? What are you talking about, new commandment? Yeah, a new commandment. <laughs> John 13, verse 34. If you're there, say, I'm there. First three words. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Oh, that, that's not new. That's Old Testament. That's Leviticus 19.18. No, no, wait. Let's, let's see what's new. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. <laughs> Jesus knew that only in the context of self-sacrificing love could discipleship ever happen. Jesus also knew that he was about to leave. And so he commissioned the 12 that he'd been training to carry on the legacy of self-sacrificing love. And so what was new about this commandment? It was new because it's love one another as I have loved you. 
And if it is true that in this upper room, Jesus loved them to the end, Jesus demonstrated a love that was not contingent upon satisfying this criteria or that criteria, Jesus loved them whether or not they deserved it, then Jesus is saying, hey, I'm out of here soon, and so if there's any hope of disciples ever being made in the future, you must love as I love you. (laughs) Do you know how different the love of Jesus is than human love? (laughs) The love of Jesus is completely alien, completely foreign. Recently, I read this uh, quotation from, um, from an Anglican writer, David Watson. He says this about human love. Human love, for all its powerful outflow of emotions, is basically self-centered and self-seeking. Human love manipulates people and situations to achieve its end. It is restless, insatiable, and destructive of true fellowship. You think it's overstated? (laughs) No, no, no. Not really, right? I mean, let's be honest. The people that we have a hard time loving are the people that we don't feel like we're going to get very much in return from. Think about the person that you last had a hard time loving. And why you had a hard time loving. Why, why I had a hard time loving. It was because I didn't feel like I was going to get very much gratification out of that. I didn't feel like I was going to uh, be very productive with that. Or I didn't feel like there was much in it for me. Friends, that's human love. It's a me-first approach to love. Can I read you something else that totally took my heart through the ringer a couple weeks ago? Oh, this comes from a book called Our Father Cares, page 45. It says, The love that gives kind words to only a few while others are treated with coldness and indifference is not love, but selfishness. Can I read it again? The love that gives kind words to only a few while others are treated with coldness and indifference is not love, but selfishness. It will not in any way work for the good of souls or for the glory of God. We are not to confine our love to one or two objects. This is a me-first approach to love. This is a what-can-I-get attitude in love, not what-can-I-give. And a love, (laughs) quote-unquote, that seeks what it can get is very quick to refuse, to reject, to stiff-arm any object of that love that will not give back. It's a conditional love. It's limited to only a few. It's self-serving and manipulative because it makes others walk on eggshells because they wonder or not they have your approval. Ouch! (laughs) Right? Man, and so I'm, I'm hearing, I'm reading this in my devotional time a few weeks ago, and I'm just broken. Like, God, everything that I think is love is truly selfishness. Oh, God, break my heart and give me a love that is like yours. Friends, I don't know if this, yeah, well, what this does to you, but it, I know what it did to me, and it's doing to me. <laughs> but Jesus' love is not like that. Jesus' love is not reserved for a few because they've met this criteria or that. 
Jesus' love is not reserved for a few because he approves and he disapproves. Jesus' love does not make others walk on eggshells wondering if he likes them. (laughs) And then Jesus says, love like that. Wow. That's the commandment, to love like that. And can you imagine what it would be like to be part of a community like that? Where you didn't have to worry if brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so was offended by how you opened the door or the words that you said or didn't say. Would you imagine what a household like that would be if you didn't have to worry about whether this member of your household truly loved you? (laughs) That you didn't have to worry about doing doing things a certain way in order to have a pleasant day. Can you imagine what it would be like to be part of a community like that? And Jesus says, love one another like that. (laughs) Love one another like that. And he says in verse 35, By this all men shall know that you are my disciples. The power of this is the power to distinguish. It sets this apart. Uh, that's why second, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that you shall be a peculiar people, not because you're weird, but because you love in a completely different way than the rest of this world. Wow. It has the power to distinguish, and I would say it has the power to draw. Uh, Recently, I read a statement in Ministry of Healing. It says, the strongest argument in favor of Christianity is a loving and lovable Christian. Mm, Because they love like Jesus loves. Wow. And so, question, how? (laughs) Right? If it's so foreign to us, how in the world are we supposed to love like that? How does that happen? Let me just suggest a couple keys that have hit me this week, and some of them are embedded right there in the text. So you're there still, John chapter 13, verse 34, 35. It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have, what? Loved you that you also love one another. I would say that the first key to this is be loved by Jesus first. As I have loved you. We cannot give what we haven't first received. (laughs) 1 John 4, verse 19, you probably already know it. We love because he first loved me. Probably right now you're singing a song. Because he first loved me, right? We love only because he first loved us. So first key, be loved by Jesus. (laughs) In 2 Peter chapter, actually, can we cross-reference this very quickly? 2 Peter chapter 1, you're in first, oh, sorry, you're in John, go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, I, I want to show something to you that I've just been chewing on recently. 2 Peter chapter 1, it's towards the end. If you get to 1 John and Revelation, you've gone too far. But 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, verse 9 is what I really want to look at. Second Peter 1, verse 9. When you're there, say, I found it. Okay. Second Peter 1, verse 9. 
If you were to read kind of from verses 5 and onward, you kind of get this idea that uh, Peter wants you to grow, okay? Peter is wanting disciples to grow. Hey, add to your faith, uh, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control. And he talks about adding these things to your life, working them out, but, but really in the context of this is all by the power of the promises of God. It's not by your effort. And at the top of this list in verse 7, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, add love right? Hey, so isn't love something that we're supposed to work at? You know, how, how does this actually work out? No, in verse 9, in verse 9, he, he says this, for he who lacks these things, right, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, godliness, brotherly kindness, and especially love, if you lack love, and maybe I'm the only one in here that feels like I'm lacking love today, but it says, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So if I'm lacking love, it's not because I need to try harder, but it's because I need to remember more. If you're lacking these things, it's not because you're not like spiritually strong enough. No, it's because you've forgotten something. You've forgotten that you were already cleansed. You've forgotten that all your struggle to add these things is not in order to be cleansed. It's because you are cleansed. So, be loved by Jesus first. By that love that is unconditional. By that love that is not contingent. By that love that is self-sacrificing. And when you're loved by that, realizes that you, you realize that that love cleanses you in the process. Ah, so first key, how am I supposed to love? Be loved first. Be loved by Jesus first. Second key, I would say, is seek the indwelling of Christ in the heart. Seek the indwelling of Christ in the heart. The, the verse that comes to mind is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the only way that that can happen is if we've been crucified first. Now, we must realize that crucifixion is never self-inflicted. Did you know that? Have you ever tried? Don't try, please. <laughs> crucifixion is never self-inflicted. It must be done for you by someone else. And so that's why we're crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but Christ lives in me. And when he lives in me, we call this the indwelling of the Spirit. And did you notice that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, the Bible tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, not the wages of your effort, the fruit of Christ dwelling in you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Love is a fruit of Christ dwelling in you. It's also a gift. Did you know that? It's also a gift, which means that you can't earn it. It's a spiritual gift. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when, when, when Paul is going through the, the spiritual gifts and all this, then he gets to chapter 13 and he says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Because if you have the tongue of men and of angels but have not love, you're like a clinging gong and a noisy cymbal. And that love is patient. That love is kind. That love is true. And friends, it's in the context of spiritual gifts, which means it's not something we work. It's something we receive. So, how do we love? First, be loved by Jesus first, okay? 
Second, seek the indwelling of Christ, seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it's the fruit of the Spirit and the gift of the Spirit. In fact, I recently read another statement. It said, Christ in the heart is a death blow to all our (laughs) self-love. I love it. Christ in the heart. It's a death blow to all our self-love. So when that happens, ah, then the fruit of the Spirit can be born. Then that love can be born in our hearts. Okay, third key. So key number one, be loved by Jesus first. Key number two, seek the indwelling of Christ in the heart. Key number three, you ready? Start with those who are closest to you. (laughs) Start with those who are closest to you because you remember John 13, 34, 35, that new commandment, He said, love one another as I have loved you. He didn't just look at the disciples and say, all right, this this just isn't working. Um, You love those in that city, (laughs) and you love those in that city just like I loved you. Forget about each other. No, that's not what he said, right? (laughs) He said, love one another as I have loved you. So start with those that are closest to you. And here's where we draw it to the relevance of what we're doing today. Foot washing and communion. You think, oh yeah, this is a great message. I'll apply this tomorrow. (laughs) I'll apply this once I walk out these doors. I'll apply this with another sphere of influence. I pray that you would, but I pray that you would start with those that are closest to you. Maybe you're here just kind of visiting. You're you're traveling through. Like, I've I'm not even part of this community. Well, it's okay. You can still love one another as I have loved you. Start with those that are closest to you. Ah, but I I just don't, don't, I've been here for a while and I don't even know people's names. That's okay. You can start with those that are closest to you. Is that okay today? Can, can, can Can we take this commandment seriously? Love one another. Oh, one another, one another, one another. So foot washing, why do we do it? So we can love one another. (laughs) So we can follow the example of Jesus who rose up only to lay himself aside. So we can follow the example of Jesus and love each other to the end, even if it's been hard at times. We can love each other to the end. It's a practical demonstration. It may be very uncomfortable for people. It may be very ticklish for people. But it's a practical demonstration that Jesus says, blessed are you if you do this. And so what we'll do in just a few moments is we'll go to different rooms. Gentlemen, if you want to partner up with a brother, come to this room. Sisters, if you want to partner up with another sister, go to Bellamon Hall. Maybe you're here with a husband or wife or with your family and you want to to experience this together, to, you've sel- sensed a rift in your own relationships just in this week. You haven't seen each other around the breakfast table or dinner table all week, and, and you need to love one another. Then take the opportunity, and you can go just straight across here to the kindergarten room, okay? And when you get there, you're going to be kind of wondering, maybe you haven't decided already who you're going to wash feet with, but that's okay. Everybody else in the room hasn't decided either, okay? <laughs> so just look around. Yes. Love one another by making eye contact. Love one another by introducing yourself. Love one another by taking the first step, even if people haven't asked for it. Does that sound okay today? And I hope this would be not just something we practice today, 
but that in our interactions with one another, we would truly love as Jesus loved. And when we come back, you'll notice that the pews are kind of marked. You're already doing a very good job of that. But yeah, just sit every other pew so that when we pass out the simple symbols of bread and juice, you can do so with a prayer in your heart that you would receive Christ. Say, Lord, I have no love to give, so please love me. When you chew into that bread and you drink that juice, receive that love, not just tritely or lightly, but receive it knowing that that was an infinite price to show you love. Love that you and I didn't deserve. I am thankful for Jesus' love. Amen? Amen. Awesome. And I think this young man is too. (laughs) So he's ready to go. He's ready to roll, and I hope that you are too. I want to pray together, and we're going to go ahead and dismiss into the different rooms. But let us pray for God's Spirit to move. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to put these words into practice. What a blessed example. What a blessed instruction. And Lord, this is totally impossible for us. We cannot love like you unless you love us first. And so in our foot washing experience, I pray that you would just fill each of our hearts and each of the rooms with a joyful reverence that we would seek one another out, that we would look into each other's faces, that we would rise up to lay ourselves aside. Oh, Father, thank you in advance for the experience of community and also communion. And we pray that as we put these things into practice, not just today, but as we live these things out in the day-to-day, in the everyday things, in, in our households and in our small groups, and just in connecting with one another throughout the week, Lord, I pray that you would create a culture in which discipleship can truly happen. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Let the family say, amen. Amen. All right. So brothers, this way, to my left, your right. Sisters, to Bellman Hall. Couples and families, to the kindergarten room across the way. God bless you. We'll see you back in a few minutes.